Welcome to Generations Church. My name is Jeff Ferris. Uh, our senior pastor, Alan, was uh, speaking to you before. So I uh, have the honor of getting to speak to you now. Uh, I want to start with a word of prayer first. So Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word and the power and truth that's in it. Father, I pray that any word I may speak that is not of you would fall to the ground and die. But any word that I speak is, that is from you, Father, that would take root in the hearts of those who have ears to hear and bear much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you remember that song, Born to be Wild, huh? Yeah, right. It gets your motor going, doesn't it? Well, man's always been fascinated with speed. Perhaps obsessed is a better word to describe how some people feel about going fast and fast and faster. Today I want to talk about idol worship. For those that might be listening to this on a recording, I'm not talking about an idol that you bow down before and worship. I'm talking about being idle in your worshiping of the Lord. Behold the Koenigsegg Ajira R, the fastest car that man's ever created. In 2017, Koenigsegg shattered all the top speed records and came to be known as the fastest production car in history. The Ajira R hypercar featured a 5-liter turbocharged V8 engine that produces 1140 horsepower and has a torque of 944 pounds per foot at 4100 RPMs. This car hit a top speed of 273 miles an hour. Can you imagine? Now, before some of you gearheads or car guys get real excited about running out and buying one, you need to know the price tag is two and a half million dollars. Yeah, get two, yes. <laughs> the person or persons that designed and built the Koenig Ajira R clearly are car guys. They're gearheads and raising enthusiasts. They know how it's supposed to be driven and where it can be driven safely, if that's possible, at speeds of 273 miles an hour. And they know how it should be maintained. I am the least qualified person to stand up here and talk about cars. I am not a car guy. I am anything but a gearhead. At one time, I could change a flat tire and swap out a battery and change wiper blades. 
That is or was the extent of my automotive repair abilities. From the second grade through high school, I grew up in a little town outside of Austin called Elgin, Texas, to give you a sense of the size of the town. There's about 100 people, kids, in my graduating class. My dad was a town barber. We lacked for nothing, but we had very little. From the second grade through high school, we moved eight times in the same little town. In fact, when I brought my college girlfriend home to meet my parents, the first night was spent with me just driving her around, showing her where I used to live. It took the entire evening. I didn't have a car in high school. When I was allowed to drive, I drove whatever my dad was driving at the time. This was in the late 1960s. Many of my experiences with my dad's car were something like this. my dad's vehicles were very memorable. The first one was a 1953 two-door sedan. The memorable thing about it was the trunk, the lid of the trunk was missing, and so was the back seat. So if any of you remember what a ranchero looked like, how many of you remember rancheros? This is kind of a homemade ranchero. It smelled terrible from having the back end open to the elements. And you had to always be very careful when you got in the car in the morning because varmints often found it a good place to hang out at night. The second memorable vehicle that my dad had was an old rusted pickup truck. It was a stick shift and it had a big V8. It ran great, below 35 miles an hour and above 75 miles an hour. It had a bent front axle. This only presented a problem between the speeds of 35 miles an hour and 75 miles an hour. This presented quite a challenge for highway driving. Between 36 and 75 miles an hour, the truck would shake violently to the point that you were about to run off the road. How, I don't remember, we figured out that if you got above 75 miles an hour, it would smooth out and you could run, but we did. And I know at times I had to ask for forgiveness when I'm going more than 75 miles an hour and someone would pull out in front of me and then I had to slow down and do all that vibrating again to get back up to where it was safe. Actually, it was a road hazard without question. To this day, I'm amazed that I was ever able to get a date, that I could actually get a girl to get in one of those two vehicles to go on a date with me. Not being a car guy, I was not aware of one of the most harmful things you can do to a car. That being to let it idle for extended periods of time. Did you know that letting your car idle is actually detrimental to the modern automotive engine? It wastes gasoline. It lowers your gas mileage, just costing you money. Exhaust from an idling car is significantly greater than exhaust from a car cruising down the road. It's a myth that turning your car on and off is more uh, stressful on your car than allowing it to idle. That's why some of the newer cars have features where when your car comes to the stop, the motor turns off. And then when you go to start again and press down on the accelerator, it starts back up. It's all about recognizing the 
harm that comes from excessive idling. Idling your car is not good for your spark plugs. Idling your car is harmful to your exhaust system. And excessive idling in the car will ultimately lead to increased maintenance, breakdowns, and costly repair. Any car that you buy comes with a manual. And in the manual, you can read about how to care for the car or how, or how to avoid doing things that are harmful to the car. You just follow the directions that are provided in the manual. And I get amen. So Pastor Allen has been taking us through a series of teachings on worship. During this series, I've brought two lessons on worship. The key points from my teachings, worshiping our Lord and Savior is an outward expression of the work the Holy Spirit is doing inside of us. Make sense? Worshiping is active. You can see it, you can feel it, you can hear it, and you can see the fruits of it. Our worship impacts those that are around us. To be a Christian is to be a worshiper. Just like the Koenig Adger R car is created for speed, so too is man created to worship. True worshipers, Jesus talks about true worshipers in the account of uh, his conversation with the woman at the well in John 4, 21 through 24. It reads, Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in the truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Read that with me. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship us in spirit and truth. We are living in that time of worshiping in spirit and in truth. Just like it is harmful for a car to idle, so too is idle worship harmful to a Christian. Idol worship is harmful for a Christian. So how do you identify an idol worshiper? What is idol worship? Well, let me try and explain it by a couple of illustrations. I'm a big Texas Ranger baseball fan. Don't ask me why. It's tough right now. But if you spend any time with me, you would know that I am a Texas Ranger baseball fan. I'm not a car guy, but I am a sports guy, and I like the Texas Rangers. If you are around me at all, it's pretty evident that I'm a Texas Ranger. My golf cart has a Texas Ranger sticker on the front of it. I wear a Texas Ranger t-shirt sometimes, and I have a game jersey of my favorite Texas Ranger of all time, Adrian Beltre. I go to Texas Ranger games. I listen <laughs> way too much to my wife's uh, liking. I listen to too many Texas Ranger games on the radio, and I watch Texas Ranger games. 
I read about the Texas Rangers every day. I go online, that's kind of my distraction during the day. I read, what are they doing? Or what did they do or not do? I still have big questions, are they sellers or buyers? I don't know if there's any Ranger, any Ranger fans in here, any, a few? Okay, if you're a Rangers fan, stand up, okay? <laughs> I wanna test you, okay? Who's a Ranger fan? Now, the, if, you're not, if you're not a real Ranger fan, you're gonna be embarrassed. Okay, on three, ready? One, two, three. Let's go Rangers! Let's go Rangers! There you go, okay. So, I'm not alone. <laughs> I talk about the Texas Rangers a lot. So clearly my outward actions and appearances show that inside I am invested in the Texas Rangers and you can see it coming out of me. Now let's apply that approach in trying to define what or who is an idol worshiper or what is idol worship by defining what is not idol worship, what is a living, breathing, active worship. Are you following me? So you would see with an active worshiper, you would be able to tell they were by how they dress, or maybe better stated, by how they don't dress. Your speech, if you're an active worshiper, would betray you as being a follower of Christ. Can you truly say that you love someone or something and never speak about it? Why would you keep it a secret? Are you ashamed to talk about being a follower of Christ? Our conversations, the things we speak about should testify that we are worshipers of Christ. Acts 1 says, But you will receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be a witness unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Is Granbury part of the uttermost parts of the earth? Where you're wherever you're living at, it's the uttermost parts of the earth. And to be a true worshiper of Christ, to follow his commandments, we follow these instructions. It says that we are to be a witness to him. And we can be a witness for him through our speech, through our words, and also through our actions. True worshipers speak blessings and not cursings. James 3.10 says, Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Profanity should not be part of the vocabulary of a true worshiper. I don't know anything that discourages me more is to be around a believer and to hear them use profanity. I'm not talking about you hit your thumb with a hammer. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just in a normal conversation you get caught up in what other people are saying that they shouldn't be saying and then you hear someone join in that's a believer. It's, it's embarrassing to hear that happen. As a true worshiper, the words that come out of our mouth should be only blessings, not cursings. Can I get an amen? How we invest our time, and again, what I'm doing here is trying to 
use the analogy of when I spoke about the car and how harmful idling is to a car's engine. And the instruction manuals of that engine, of that car, tell you don't be idle. I'm trying to draw that comparison to what it's like to be an idle Christian and how harmful it is to believers to be idle in their worship of the Lord. How we invest our time and will reveal if we are or are not an idle worshiper. An active worshiper spends time in God's Word, Bible, reading the instruction manual. An active worshiper spends time talking to the Lord. Prayer is just a conversation with God. I think sometimes we try to make it too formal and get too caught up in the structure and the words that we want to use. I've seen some powerful prayers. I think the most powerful prayer I ever saw was in a church of Christ. It was a big church. And they had asked a young man uh, who had recently moved to town to close out the service. And it was pretty formal. You know, they had it printed out, the order of the service. And when you're supposed to close the prayer, the service, you would come down to the front before the congregation and you would say a closing prayer. This kid's name was Cleo Montgomery. So it's time to close. The pastor said, well, uh, I think Clee is going to close us in prayer. Clee, are you here? Way in the back is Clee. And he stands up on a chair and says, Lord, what a great service that was. I was just so moved by the songs. And that message was just what I had to have. I mean, he had a conversation with God in front of a congregation. That is what a true worshiper does. They have a relationship with their creator that allows them to just have a conversation, to ask questions, and yes, even sometimes to complain. <laughs> the Lord wants to hear your voice. He wants to have that conversation with you. And true worshipers talk to their creator, talk to their God. An active worshiper of Christ will serve Christ and his bride, the church. Faith works. If you're a believer and you have faith, you will work. That's what James wrote in chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Read that with me. 17. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Most of you got to, everybody get a bulletin? So if you look in, I want you to open your bulletin. And inside... There's a little card. It says, Ministries and Connections. See it? If you don't have one, just look on with somebody. There's a place for your name and your phone number and your email address. And there's ways you can commit to Christ, ask for baptism, join the church, 
and say, I'm a member, I want to get connected. But then what I want to focus on is right below that says, I want to be involved. I want to put my faith to work. And there's a long list of things that you can do. And if you can fog a mirror, then there's things on here that you can do. I promise you. I've said this before, but uh, my wife and I started working in children's church. We need children's church workers. And you may say, I'm not a teacher. I couldn't do that. Doesn't matter. Miss Laura's got it all scripted out. If you can read, you can be in kids' church. I promise you it's the most rewarding thing that you'll ever do to stand in front of a classroom of kids when it's your turn and you got your piece of paper and you read what Miss Laura says you're supposed to say and they're just sitting there. They really think you know what you're talking about. They really do. And it takes no preparation. She hands it, she'll email it to you and you can read it and then you meet up there with her at 10 o'clock and you just go through the script. She needs help. The youth need help. I mean, uh, if you've raised kids, then you're qualified to help Miss Yvette and her group of people work with the youth. There's a long list of people, long list of things on here to do. Greeters, I promise you, when we, I've greeted, I've never once had someone ask me what I thought about the Trinity. Not one time. <laughs> They'll usually ask where the restroom is, where, where's the service at, register my kids to go to class, that type of thing. Anybody can be a greeter. Even grouches can be greeters. <laughs> so I want you to hold this and close your eyes. I want to say a prayer, okay, real quick. Lord, we just, Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and you'd reveal to everyone here in this building right now how they should serve you and serve this congregation. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, talking about idol worship talking about what a true worshiper does, how you can identify them. One of the ways you can identify an idol worship, uh, a uh, active worshiper is their willingness to return back to the Lord what he has blessed them with. When I spoke several, well, it's been a couple of months ago, I talked about the book, The Blessed Life. And we had ordered a number of books, only half of them came in. I think there was a total of 130. And there's just a few left. I want to read you an excerpt of it. It says, being blessed means having supernatural power working for you. By contrast, being cursed means having supernatural power working against you. The days of the blessed person are filled with divine coincidences and heavenly meanings. A blessed man may or may not be wealthy by the world standards, but he enjoys a quality of life that most billionaires would envy. At four separate points in the book of Deuteronomy, God tells those who will obey him that he will bless everything to which they put their hands to. That's what the blessed life is like. Everything you touch does well. Blessings permeates every aspect of a person's life, health, relationships, work, family, emotions, thoughts. Sound good? Then read on. You're about to discover how to live a life of blessing. Robert Morris, a senior pastor at Gateway Church in Southlake, is the author of this book. I strongly believe in tithing, and a number of people have, that have read the book have come to me since then and gave me their testimony of what God was doing in their life through 
the principles they were following in that book. I highly encourage you to prayerfully consider becoming a tither. I strongly believe it's my belief. You can decide for yourself whether you believe tithing is what you should do. But I think God's word, and particularly in that book, it bears witness to the fact that that is a truth. The quality of our relationships with God, being a true worshiper, can also be seen and should be seen in our marriage. Let me pause right here. Linda Butler and John Sanders, you guys, can you stand up? So we're privileged. You would be privileged to be able to attend their wedding, which is going to happen immediately after the service. And I know they would welcome everybody to hang around and participate in that. Congratulations. I, I do weddings. I love to do weddings. Uh, in fact, I think you should let me do yours instead of Pastor Al. No, no, not really. Not really. But I think I spoke before, but when I do weddings, one of the things that I do is uh, I encourage them to not keep score. And I actually have them hold imaginary scorecards and say, give me your scorecard and tear it up in front of them. That is my advice to you guys. Don't keep score to have a long-lasting marriage. But our marriage, how we... The role that we play in that marriage, how we reflect ourselves as husbands and as wives, should reflect the level of the relationship that we have with the Lord. A true worshiper, a person who's married to a true worshiper of Christ will see Christ living in that person. Can I get an amen? Our families should reflect the fact that we're true worshipers of God and our friendships should reflect that we're true worshipers of God. A true worshiper of God has surrounded himself with believers, individuals that can hold a person accountable, individuals that can make themselves available for prayer and, and uh, needs such as that. That's what, what's what I see when I follow around a true worshiper and I watch them, they're surrounded by godly men. I don't believe anyone becomes a Christian with the thought that they will not be a worshiper of Christ. I don't think anyone, when they accept Christ, also says subconsciously, but I'm going to be an idle Christian. I don't, think, I don't think that happens. But I think somehow they fall into that. They become idle Christians, and, and it's a choice. You have a choice to make as a follower of Christ, whether you're going to be an active worshiper or an idle Christian. I think one of the reasons why people don't actively worship the Lord is procrastination. Before I talk a little bit about procrastination, I want to tell you a parable, not from the Bible, but a parable of this unknown author. It's called The Man on the Fence. Anybody heard it? Just you in the first service? <laughs> there was a large group of people gathered. On one side of the group stood Jesus, and on the other side of the group stood Satan. Separating them was a fence running through the group. Both Jesus and Satan began to call to the people. One by one, each having made up his mind or her mind, went to either Jesus or Satan. This kept going on for some time. 
Soon enough, Jesus had gathered around him a group of people from the large crowd, as had Satan. One man joined neither crowd. He climbed the fence that was there and sat on it. Jesus and his people left and disappeared, and so too did Satan and his people. The man on the fence sat alone. At this, as this man sat, Satan returned, looking for something which he appeared to have lost. And the man said, have you lost something? And Satan looked straight at him and replied, no, I've come to get you. And the man said, oh, but I sat on the fence. I chose neither you nor him. And Satan said, that's okay. The fence and those who sit on it belong to me. The fence and those who sit on it belong to me. That's what Satan said. Matthew 12, 30, Jesus said, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Say that with me. Read that with me. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. You're for me or you're against me. As I said earlier, I believe most idol worshipers are idle due to procrastination. This morning I got up and got ready quickly because I had to get a lot of stuff done. I sat down at my desk to start getting my stuff done and I spilled my coffee so I got a sponge to clean it up and I figured I'd take an extra minute to clean the whole desk because a clean desk would help me get my stuff done. When I was finished, I realized I hadn't eaten anything and I didn't want to be hungry while I got my stuff done, so I went into the kitchen and I was out of cereal. When I got to the grocery store, I remembered a bunch of other crap I needed to get and I figured I was already there, so I did my shopping for the week so I didn't have to worry about it while I got my stuff done. When I got home, I didn't feel like cereal anymore and so I made an omelette and I did the dishes so I wouldn't have to do them after I got my stuff done and then I went out to get some oil from the hardware store because my desk chair is kind of squeaky and I didn't want to be distracted by a squeaky chair while I got my stuff done. When I got back, it was getting kind of late and I knew I wouldn't be able to get my stuff done today so I started watching the Twilight Zone marathon on TV. I just have to make sure I get to bed early because I want to be well rested tomorrow so I can get my stuff done. <laughs> Procrastination. I think everybody has to fight against that. But as I said earlier, I'm convinced that a lot of people are idol worshipers because they procrastinate. They intend to, but they just can't get started. Um, in this book that was written, it's called The Pro Procrastination Cure by Damien Zaharadius. Um, he lists out a lot of reasons why people procrastinate. Fear of failure is one. Fear of success, believe it or not, it's, uh, studies have proven that fear of success can cause someone to procrastinate. Perfectionism. People can procrastinate because they're perfectionists. Maybe they wouldn't be able to do it perfectly. I'm not ready yet. I couldn't do it perfectly. A feeling of being overwhelmed. You know, if I start, will I be able to complete it? Laziness. Yes, you can be a Christian and not serve because you're just lazy. You don't want to give up any of your time. You don't want to give up any. It, it's not convenient for you. Negative self-talk can 
be a reason for procrastinating. Uh, you just say bad things about yourself, you begin to believe it, and so you don't even bother to start. Uncertainty about how to start. That's one of the key reasons why people procrastinate. They just can't get started. Mark Twain had a, a, a thought on procrastination and how to get started. Uh, he tells us, he's, it goes like this. If the worst thing on your to-do list for the day is to eat a frog, then eat the frog first. If your list shows you are to eat two frogs, then eat the biggest frog first. Don't be caught up in all the things that are on that list, all those ways to serve the church, to be a true worshiper, active worshiper of the Lord. Don't get caught up in all those things that you're not comfortable doing. Choose one. Choose one. Mark it and put it in the box back there. This is a great quote talking about fear of failure. I missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the winning, the game winning shot and missed. I failed over and over and over again in my career. And that is why I succeeded. Michael Jordan, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, recognized that failure is not, doesn't define you. It's a way to move you to be successful. I have one more scripture, Acts 8, 26 through 40. It's the account of Philip and the eunuch. Now an angel of the Lord came to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does this prophet say about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture. And he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his rejoicing. The angel told Philip to go. 
And he went. He went right then. And he told him to go to a desert. And the scripture doesn't say that when you go to that desert, here's what I want you to do. Here's what's going to happen. It just said, get up and go. And he went. He didn't procrastinate. He immediately did what the Holy Spirit was telling him or what the angel was telling him to do. And then the Spirit said, Philip, go get in that chariot. And what did Philip do? Like, I don't, he didn't say, I don't know that person. What am I going to say to that person? No, he runs to him and he takes advantage of the opportunity to share the gospel. And the eunuch could have said, hmm, that's interesting. Let me think about that. I'll get back to you. The eunuch didn't do that. The eunuch said, here is water. What hindereth me from being baptized? What a great example of not procrastinating. What a great example of what a true worshiper of Christ does. He listens. He has a relationship with his creator. And he does what he was created to do, to be a worshiper, to be a follower of Christ. Idol worship. Are you an idol worshiper? So I ask your forgiveness if I have offended you in trying to encourage you to become an active worshiper, to not be an idol worshiper. But if you've been procrastinating and serving the Lord, today is the day to step out and no longer become idle, but become active. And as the song here says, get your motor running, head out on the highway, look for that adventure. And there is no adventurous life more exciting than serving God. You were born to be wild and to be wild about Christ and his bride, the church. You were created to worship. Human history, as the Bible records it, begins with a wedding. When the first man looked at the first woman and said, This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Therefore shall a man leave his mom and dad and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one. Jesus began his ministry publicly with a miracle at a wedding. They were about to run out of wine. The seventh-day occasion, this was a disaster. And Christ freed a couple from shame, social shame, by turning six huge water pots between 20 or 30 gallons apiece, between 120 and 180 gallons of the best wine was made with this miracle, forcing him to go public, which his mama kind of spurred him on there. Human history is predicted to conclude or continue until there's another wedding, when the church, the bride of Christ, is united with the groom for all eternity at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so along the way, we commemorate human history with weddings, Significant events where men and women pledge themselves to each other for the rest of their lives till death do we part. 
We have a groom and a bride in the house today. John Sanders and Linda Butler are pledging themselves together today. Can you guys come forward and can we show them some love? We're assembled here together today in the presence of God in this church, this company of loved ones, friends, neighbors, and family to join this man and this woman, John Sanders and Linda Butler, in the bonds of holy matrimony. Such a union is best experienced where love is present. Love is defined in 1 Corinthians 13 as being patient and kind, not jealous or boastful, not arrogant or rude, not insisting on having its own way, not rejoicing at wrong, but rejoicing in the right, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. Love never fails. To echo what Jeff said about tearing up the scorecards, the NIV says that love keeps no record of wrongs. So while this is advice and a charge for you, it's a charge for every husband and wife in the house, stop keeping score. Every day is a new day. You get a new slate, amen? If you can't get over something, get some help. If your car's not running right, get some help, right? If marriage isn't running right, get some help. Do not have an idle marriage that's frustrating to everybody. Get help. There's so much, so much joy and peace in a marriage where love is present. A union setting forth such an ideal is not to be entered into hastily, but advisedly and with due consideration. Are you sure you want to do this? Okay. All right. All right. To the groom. John, can you turn and face your bride and hold Linda's hands in your hands? All right. Do you, John Sanders, take this woman, Linda Butler, to be your lawful wedded wife, to love and respect her, to honor and cherish her in health and in sickness, in prosperity and adversity, leaving all others, keeping yourself only unto her so long as you both shall live from this day forward. Linda Butler, do you in like manner receive this man Mr. John Sanders, as your lawful wedded husband, to love and respect him, to live with him in all faith and tenderness, in health and in sickness, in prosperity and adversity, leaving all others, keeping yourself only for him as long as you both shall live from this day onward. Do you have rings to symbolize your union? A ring is a precious thing made up of treasured metal to symbolize the treasure that marriage is. It's a circle. It's, a circle is a line that never stops, commemorating the ongoing commitment that this is. When you see this ring on your spouse's hand, be reminded of this very special day. Place this on your bride's hand and repeat after me. With this ring... I thee wed. I thee wed. I give it as a token of my faith. I give it as a token of my faith. And symbol of my love. All right. And symbol of my love. That's right. You have another ring, all right? 
A ring is a symbol of covenant. Marriage is much more than a contract. Contracts can be broken. Covenants are for life. When God gave the sign of the rainbow, it was a covenant to man to promise to not destroy the earth again with a flood of water. It's also a covenant one day judgment is coming when fire is coming. So when you celebrate your sin and use a rainbow to do it, beware, there's a warning in that. But back to the subject at hand today, a rainbow, if you see it in its entirety, which is a rare thing to do, a rainbow is a perfect circle, symbolic of covenant. When you see this ring on your hand, when you see this ring on his hand, be reminded that you have made a covenant together today. Place this on the groom's left hand. Repeat after me, with this ring I thee wed. I give it as a token of my faith and symbol of my love. All right. Hold hands together. Let me lay hands on you. Father, I thank you for this man and this woman who've pledged themselves together for life in marriage. I pray, Lord, that you would give them eyes to see. You lead them in making this marriage a strong one, a happy one, a joyous one. Lord, I pray that every day is a new adventure for this couple, that they were born not to be idle, but to be wildly and passionately in love with being married to each other. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. By the power invested in me from this local church and the state of Texas and the kingdom of God as a pastor, I pronounce you husband and wife. Groom, you're now a husband. <laughs> Bride, you're now a wife. Husband, you may kiss your wife. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's my honor and privilege to introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. John and Linda Sanders. Yes. Yeah.